Greetings, everyone. I'm so glad you're here today joining me on Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rays, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. You can find out more about me at bouldernutrition.com. My inspiration with Satiate is to offer you functional nutrition, food psychology, and well being insights, to share with you case studies and stories that can act as salve for your soul, to share with you some of my most favorite special guests and experts from all over the country and to offer you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, heart, and soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful to have you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That will help me get the podcast out into the world to the listeners who need it most. I'm so excited to introduce to you today's special guest, Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga teacher, postpartum advocate, and single mom. Working hands-on in integrative health and trauma recovery for more than a decade, she helps women heal from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary violations. Kimberly is the author of the forthcoming book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Power, and Use It for Good, as well as the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester, and is the host of the Sex, Birth, and Trauma podcast. Her new book, Call of the Wild, is equally grounded in science and empathy with a commitment to centering the feminine that makes it the first of its kind in the field. It's written to give you both the paradigm shift and the practices you need to heal, awaken your power, and live your most embodied life. Call of the Wild is available for pre-order and purchase, as well as arrives on shelves April 15th, 2021. Thank you so much for being here, Kimberly. I know that there's so much going on <laughs> with your book coming out, and I'm just so glad you were able to take some time to be here on the podcast with me. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Our second right. go-round. Our second go-round, right. I think you might actually be the first person that I've had on the podcast twice. So Love it. I fun. love being a first. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Clearly we go back so far and I've seen you go through so many different things, both near and far through staying in touch and social media and all of that. And and I'm just so excited for you with this next phase of your book coming out and all that you're doing in the world with your work. So it's, it's just really inspiring to see. And I just think it'd be great to start with a little bit about you and your work and explaining to the readers, you know, kind of what, where you're coming from. You obviously have your first book, The Fourth Trimester, which has been out now for a good few years, right? Three years. Three years. And now your second book coming out mid-April 2021, Call of the Wild. I'm so excited that I was able to get a sneak peek of that. So yeah, tell us about a little bit about you and your work. I work with women, helping them heal from birth injuries, uh, gynecological surgeries or conditions, and sexual boundary violations. And I help them repair boundaries through their nervous system. So as you know, because we used to practice yoga together, I, I was a yoga teacher for a long time. I'm also a rolfer. I'm a... <laughs> I'm a this, I'm a that, Uh, I'm a birth doula, I'm an author, I'm a single mom, Um, I'm all these things. And some people are like, oh yeah, you have this certification and that certification. 
But to me, it's all been about understanding what it means to be human and what it means to be a human animal. And just, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, your book's about trauma. I don't care much about pathology. I never have. But, you know, I taught yoga therapy for a while and I did one-on-one yoga therapy. And you kind of have to, you have to care about pathology because as humans, we all just have stuff. None of us is free from ways in which uh, we had ruptures in our lives. So being human is also having trauma, but really I'm interested in the full expression of who we are and how we are and how we are together and how we love each other. Mm. Amazing. Um, I love how you can frame that in such a way that's so human. And I have been able to, you know, read both of your books and they also are very different in a lot of ways with obviously some similarities. Tell us a little bit about how you got from your first book, which was so focused on postpartum care and, um, and the fourth trimester. And now here we are with this very thorough and very specific topic around trauma in your next book, Call of the Wild. So can you tell me like the process of how you got from one to the other? Sure. It's interesting when I pick them up, because once you write your, your book, you'll notice that people quote yourself back to you and you don't even like, I'll see a quote and I'll be like, oh yeah. And then I'll be like, oh, I wrote that. They're quoting me. <laughs> I don't even remember, I don't even remember <laughs> writing that. Uh, like, you know, cause you, you think every time you read your own stuff, it's just like looking at a picture of yourself. Sometimes you're like, I look great. And other times you're like, oh, that was this, but you're looking at the same thing. It's just who, is the one who's looking changes. So it's the same with writing. You know, sometimes I read my book and I'm like, this is really good. And sometimes I'm like, oh no, I, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, when I read both books, I see that they're so similar and it surprises me. And I go, oh, that was in the first book. Like I already knew that. I thought this was a new thing that I discovered. No, I actually already knew that something in me already knew it. Uh, but I can see how from the outside, it seems very different. Uh, what I love is that my first book is an aspirational book about what I wish that I would have had, what I wish that I would have known. There are experiences that I had a lot of difficulty with that then I realized, oh, there's this cultural gap and maybe this book can help fill it. In a similar way, I'm hoping to fill a cultural gap with this book which is that we are animals and we live in this neurocentric culture where we think everything is like from the top down. It's all about our brain. Even somatic therapy now is like obsessed with neuroscience, which is fine. Uh, but it's, I'm hoping that we can bridge this gap of how polarized all conversation has become and that there's just really two scripts that you can belong to or have. But this book is really me. This book is like, I am the Jaguar. I live this. I know this. And so writing it was actually in a way a lot easier because I was writing from a felt sense perspective of I know exactly what I'm saying and what I'm doing. And that didn't mean it's not easy. It's never easy writing a book. But this book feels like a different kind of victory. The first book was like, okay, this is a rite of passage. And this is an insane, it felt like bursting through all kinds of ancestral lineage stuff. And then just, you know, I remember turning in my first manuscript and then thinking like, they're going to fire me. They're going to drop me. They're going to give me back my advance. Um, and they actually did reject my first draft, but just because they rejected it didn't mean that they were also dropping me. There was just so much stuff there about like, I'm not sure this is like, I'm good enough, which is really weird. But anyway, um, this one was like, oh yeah, like you want this and, and you need this and the world needs this, mm. which I'm sure is built off of the confidence from the fact that the first book did, has done so well and has ignited a fire of a cultural conversation. Of course, when the outer world reflects that back to you, it's a lot easier to do that. And I think that's one thing that we really get wrong in spirituality and therapy is that like we should just feel that way all by ourselves. And it's actually impossible. Like we don't, we should, yeah, you can feel a sense of fulfillment without having external validation, but it, there's nothing wrong with 
wanting external validation. And in fact, we should look for that because if the outer world isn't reflecting to us at all what's happening in our inner world, that's a lack of coherence. And so there is something that we can rely on between how people respond and relate to us or including how a publishing house responds and relates to you. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's um, obviously, you know, you and I have had a lot of overlap with our work and our histories, single mom, yoga. We both are writers. We're both in the health and wellness field. And I can just tell you, like, I completely understand what you're, what you're saying. And I was just talking about this last night. Like I got a couple big confidence boosts this week myself from the outside world. And it, I can feel my energetic self shifting into it more, even just when I'm working with my clients, like I'm owning it more. And I, I really, um, this has been on my mind all week. So I, I think that the inner and outer worlds, if they don't align, there's something not working. And, you know, so it's great to hear you say it in this way. And yeah. And, um, you know, when I teach women about business or money, it's like the same thing. Like I see some women and they are just working, 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 working. And I, from the outside, I'm like, I see how hard they're working and I see what they're doing. And for the amount that they're working, they should be making X amount. And I'm not talking about, I'm not in the high end coaching charge, da, da, da. That's not where I'm at. But like literally for the amount of expertise and value and effort that someone's putting in, it's just not coherent with the amount of money that they're getting back. And that's where burnout happens, right? It's like there is there is a reason that we live in a world. And if we're always only in therapy, whatever kind of therapy, even somatic therapy, just like tracking our sensations and like trying to work out the way that we are without ever looking at the world around us and what we're offering to it and how it's offering things to us, we're really missing a huge piece. And I'm hoping that in this book, the, you know, the last chapter or last, like the epilogue is really personal to collective healing. And that's where my heart is really at. I like, I need, I really, our felt sense perception, human animals know what's going on in, on an echolocation basis with all the other human animals that we're cohabiting and, and animals period that we're cohabiting with. So I'm hoping that this book gives people, yes, the tools to quote unquote, feel better, but that feeling better doesn't just mean anesthetizing yourself so that you can go on having your great life um, that makes you feel good, that it also makes you receptive and a receptor to the realities of the culture that we're living in. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting conversation and you and I can probably really understand the deeper layers of this from our history in, in, in Boulder together. And some people might not understand that um, if they're not from this part of the country, but I absolutely love your um, subtitle of your book. Will you say it so I don't get it wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I get it wrong. These subtitles, man, they're mouthfuls. My first book too is like, wait, what's that subtitle again? And then I feel okay about it because sometimes people like, I think you even asked me, could I see your book proposal? So I'll give someone my book proposal and I'm like, oh yeah, it had a totally different title or subtitle at that point. At some point right. it had different words in it. But this book is Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good. Okay. So I, when I got your book from you a few weeks ago, that one that you emailed to me, I just want to say when I read the tagline, I got chills. I guess it's not a tagline. Maybe it's called a subtitle. Um, but use it for good. That, that last phrase is really circles back to what we're talking about. Because when we do the work that we want to do to be stronger and heal and feel you know, integrated in ourselves and in our power. Like, what good is that if we're not using it for good? And yet, how can we show up in the world in our own little ways or big ways to, you know, to be of service? And it's, um, so I just wanted to tell you that I, I love that you included that in your subtitle. And um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit yeah. about- I do want to add to that though, just one thing, because sure. I'm sure that a lot of the people that 
are listen to your podcast and are a part of this conversation. And for sure, most of the people that I work with, they're really trying to do good. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that most of us really care. We really care about each other. We really care about one another. We care about what's happening in the world. And most of us are dealing with an extreme amount of overwhelm. And people who are going to work with you or work with me are people that are parasympathetically dominant. So in their nervous system, they're predisposed towards parasympathetic reactions, which are empathy, oftentimes going towards activism, really resonating with the prey and the predator-prey dynamic. And within that, there's specific work that needs to be done so that we can use it for good and so that we have stamina for it. Because otherwise, we're just in the sensitivity realm. We're not well enough to do that, right? Like we have to be, we have to have a level of wellness. Otherwise, we can do it for a second, but we can't sustain it. And what I'm talking about is like, how do we develop that stamina? How do we develop the racial stamina? How do we develop stamina for conflict? that doesn't take us down every time, you know, a big wave comes. Because uh, one thing that's really happened in the trauma world that I've noticed, and especially with social media, where like, you know, since somatics and trauma are like the new black, everyone's got a freaking meme about how somatics work is like, there's this emphasis on regulation. Like everything is about safety and regulation. And that usually means like, taking a hot bath and going for a walk and taking a deep breath and a long exhale and da, 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 and like do these things. And if you do this, you'll be more regulated, but that's really a freaking low bar for like humanity. Like, yeah. Okay. Regulated and safe. Yeah. We want to feel those things, but why do we want to feel those things? We want to feel those things so that we can be expressed and so that we can be engaged and we can live and we can interact and we could use it for good because we're thinking the long, we're playing the long game. We're not just here in reaction to the next news cycle that's coming our way, that we're like developing that platform of resilience or okayness or regulation, if you want to call it that, is that's a springboard. That's not a destination. So right. for the people listening, I'm not incriminating anyone. I mean, for God's sake, we're coming out of a pan or are we coming out? I have no idea. I think we're coming we're nearing coming out of a pandemic and it's been a year. I mean, I massive migration. Most people have moved. Uh, you know, my daughter's been in three different schools. There's so much we're contending with. So it's not that I'm, well, I am criticizing, but I'm also within a framework of acknowledging, yes, this is challenging. And yes, we're being asked to evolve and mature to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really great segue to go into the nervous system because what you mentioned about parasympathetic dominance and what you're talking about with these three different branches of the nervous system, which a lot of people think of as two and myself included. Um, so that was I'm really new for you. Well, not exactly brand new from your book, but new-ish. Like in the last couple of years, that's been coming up a lot more. And it really does point to the earlier part of our conversation, which is the outer and the inner feeling good um, and aligned. And so would you be willing to give us like a little tour of the nervous system for a few minutes so that we can then go into some deeper conversations with people knowing the terms? Definitely. So our nervous system is made of nerves. They're real things. So if you did a dissection, you would see those nerves. When we talk about nadis in yoga or meridians in Chinese and Chinese medicine, you can't see those. Um, the, I mean, if not with your physical eyes, at least. Uh, so when I when we're talking about a nervous system, it's an electromagnetic chemical system that's happening, and those nerves run through fascia, which is connective tissue. And everyone has different kinds of connective tissue composition. So how fast or slow those energetic signals, magnetic signals, electrical signals are firing depends on how the composition of your connective tissue is. 
we tend to think that we're like personalities communicating with each other. So we tend to think like, okay, I'm talking to you, Sue, you're like another redhead and you're Canadian and you have blue eyes and you're a mom and I know this. And then you're thinking, oh, Kimberly, she's redhead. Um, But we're actually, it's our nervous systems that are communicating to each other. And so on very specific, some of them are quite obvious once you learn how to read them and you're tuning in at that level. Uh, we're really just sending signals to each other about like, do we want to move towards each other? Do we want to move away from each other? Am I safe to totally be myself or just be myself a little bit? And we're making those very um, quick, fine decisions all the time, whether or not we want to think that we are. We are. The social nervous system is the most recent branch. So if you in middle school or high school, whenever you learned about the autonomic nervous system, you learned probably that your sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight and your parasympathetic system is rest and digest. That's what I learned. And that's what most of the people that I talked to learned. And it's also what a lot of people in the biohacking space and many other spaces are still using so much so that people have now, now they just say, I'm having a fight or flight as if that's the whole story of how the nervous system works. 1994, Stephen Porges authored the polyvagal theory and polyvagal theory came along and it added several nuances to how we know that the nervous system works. The first nuance was this is not, this isn't an accelerator brake system. There's a whole other cascade that's happening prior to even getting to the sympathetic and parasympathetic responses. So saying that sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest is a mixed metaphor. It's comparing apples to oranges because it's comparing the sympathetic system under threat because when we're under threat in the sympathetic system, we have a fight or flight response with parasympathetic system under safety, which is when we have safety in that system, there's resting and digesting. Exactly. The social nervous system is the most recent branch of the nervous system to evolve. What nerves? The ventral vagal branch. So it enervates from your heart. So your heart is actually in the superficial layer of fascia, which is kind of crazy, but true. And it goes up into your neck, your jaw, your throat, your orienting apparatus. So it's heart up. It developed for maternal bonding. It developed so that we are very attuned to how our young are so that they will survive. So it's a primate adaptation. Do other animals have amazing social networks? Of course, even birds have them. They're incredible ants. I'm not a super biologist, but I do know like a couple of things about it. But it's not the same as a social nervous system, which is wiring mostly around the small muscles in our faces that's conveying emotional affect and creating that mirroring circuitry. When we feel safe in our social nervous system, we feel that we belong. And we feel that we belong in a way that we don't have to minimize difference in order to belong. So we can be differentiated. We can have our own ideas. We can look the way that we want to look and that we're not risking a belonging to either our relationship, our family, our religion, our the where we live, whatever social groups we're in. Women are disproportionately impacted by the social nervous system because of estrogen. Estrogen is a bonding hormone. Estrogen makes us extremely concerned with the collective wellness because on a visceral physiological level, we know that if the group isn't well, that we won't be well. And so as women, we're also predisposed to the social nervous system responses under threat, fitting in and fawning because those are ways that we're managing whether or not there's a sense of belonging and fitting in. So fitting in is when you camouflage yourself and you try to minimize anything that would make you stand out, which could be as simple as wearing lipstick or not wearing lipstick or um, not saying what you really think, uh, not either earning more than the rest of your family or earning less than the rest of your family, anything that's going to make it seem like you're not a part of the group. Fawning 
is has become more popular recently, I think, in terms of visibility of this being a part of a potential response, is keeping a threat close to you. So fawning is being nice or people-pleasing or appeasing, as well as approximating a threat. So it's why women go back to hostile work environments. It's why women go back to perpetrators. Uh, it's a response of, about power and a person of less structural power approximating to the person of more structural power in order to either receive that power or just to be safe because a threat that's closer to you is safer than a threat that's wandering out there. So hopefully when I talk about that, people, I mean, really my intention for teaching all of the nervous system stuff besides having people be able to mobilize for good is also to take away the blaming and shaming when we think that all of this is rational decision-making and help people understand that it's their physiology that's choosing this. Like we don't choose how we respond under stress. Our nervous system chooses how we respond to it. Yeah. At the social nervous system level, if we've determined that there's a level of an elevation or escalation of threat, then we'll dip down into the sympathetic system which is either a fight response or a flight response. So the fight going towards the threat, I'm gonna engage with it. I feel like my breath is kind of making weird noises. Or the flight moving away from it and, and getting away. So you'll notice that in yourself if you're leaning away from someone a lot of the time or you notice someone else that's backing up when they're talking to you, they're having a flight response that they're one, their system's trying to figure out if it wants to complete it and actually leave or not. And then the next tier is the parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. So the, that tier is what happened in polyvagal theory, where all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's not just rest and digest. Under extreme threat, there's freeze and collapse. So right. that's the, in English, we call that playing dead. And that's a system level, like pull the handbrake. And that is a part of the dorsal vagal system. So the dorsal is the back of the body. So the back of the head running down the spine um, to the pelvis. So that's like a collapse, resignation, apathy response. When we feel that we are safe in our sympathetic system, that's what gives us energy. That's what wakes us up in the morning. That's drive, power. Um, I know where my target is. I want it and I'm going to stay after it. Uh, in the parasympathetic system, it's that letdown. So yes, it's rest and digest. It's also fluid dilation, uh, fluid release. It's also dilation and labor. It's where arousal builds in sexuality. So like building orgasmic capacity is really going back and forth between the capacity to hold sympathetic charge and then the ability to downregulate into re relaxation. Ejaculation is in the sympathetic place, mm -hmm. you know, in labor, pushing is a more of a sympathetic action. So the other thing that's really important to know is we're all having all of these reactions all the time. They're just happening on many levels. It's kind of like a soundboard. If you've ever seen someone doing audio it, or mixing, you're mixing levels all the time. There's never a time when like, oh, I'm only this or I'm only that. It's all in relationship to each other. And we want it to be really responsive. So it's really great that we have fight or fight responses when we need them. The problem is sometimes our whole system is reacting in the present as if we're in a past situation. And that's where all the frustration comes in, where all the talk therapy and affirmations and behavioral change isn't working because that's happening at the mind level and not at the level of the body and the nervous system. Yeah. One of the things that I'm just curious about in my work with metabolic individuality and, you know, working from a nutritional perspective, you know, we have in my training a dominance, parasympathetic dominance, sympathetic dominance. And I'm wondering if that, if you see that showing up as well with people in the same type of way that you're talking like, yes, we're oscillating, but do we tend to land in one side of our nervous system, maybe more often based on our chemistry or our trauma or our history or our story or what have you? even maybe even our lineage, um, cultural paradigms and that kind of thing. 
Yeah. So is your, is that training coming from Nicholas Gonzalez? Is that where you're getting those dominances from? No, it's from Dr. William Wolcott, actually. He's the metabolic uh, typing kind of expert and one of my teachers. Okay. Uh, So the dominant, so I learned from Vincent Medici via Ellen Heed about something called the rule of four, which is that any symptom can be broke down, broken down into four possible sources. And those sources are biomechanics, biochemistry, emotions and trauma, and scar tissue. Mm. So um, within that framework, there's many things that could, and I try to, like in my first book, I have people kind of make their own pie. Because, you know, if your problem is trauma, but you're going to the doctor and all you're dealing with is your biomechanics, you're going to just be frustrated because it's not the right source of what you're working with. Um, Connective tissue is made of collagen fiber and elastin fiber. And we all have different proportions of those two things that are making up our connective tissue matrix. So you can think of collagen of like a rubber bouncy ball and elastin as like soft taffy. Genetically, we have native connective tissue density, which is usually based on where our ancestors are from regionally. So like you know, I, I, my ancestors come mostly from Scandinavia and the British Isles, which are both very Northern. And so I have really elastinous connective tissue because elastin stores fat and fat is really great when you need to deal with winter. So it's, you can't 100%, like some people are pretty 50, 50 and they listen to me talk and they're like, well, I'm kind of both. Yeah, totally. Like there's just outliers. There's people who are like really, really collagenous and people who are really, really elastinous. And if you're more collagenous, you're more likely to have a sympathetic reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you're more elastinous, you're likely to have a parasympathetic reaction. And another thing that's important to know for nutrition is that and one thing I didn't mention in my little nervous system 101 or 201 is that the parasympathetic response is happening usually from the diaphragm down and in the guts. So a lot of people who have irritable bowel syndrome and just constipation, it's a freeze in the enteric nervous system. So we want to be coming out of freeze. So just for an example, I already, on a scale of like zero to 100, zero being really elastinous and 100 being super collagenous, I'm probably like in the 20 range of elastin. So I started out that way. So people who are more elastinous tend to be more sensitive as well because our, we have more space between the fibers of our connective tissue and those electrical signals travel faster. So we're more, a lot more is happening in, internally, but also externally. And we don't have as great of boundaries because our boundaries are literally more porous. Our, our, this, the walls of our veins are thinner. The probably our intestinal wall is also more likely to open up for those leaky gut type of things because we don't have that density, right? So then I went on and, you know, I had some experiences in my life that also were boundary ruptures. And then I had a baby and I had already become a vegetarian and I became a vegetarian because I really care about, cared about the world. I, the, I became vegetarian the same week I got my period. Uh, and then I was always like an activist and really rooted for the underdog. And so I did all of these things and I had a baby and I prolapsed and it's like, well, yeah, because I was already elastinous. I didn't have enough collagen to begin with. And then I wasn't eating any kind of collagen rich foods. And I didn't know that those were related at all. And I'd done, you know, at that point, 13 years of intensive yoga, not just my own practice, but also teaching all day long. So I had done all of these things that just made me more and more predisposed to those parasympathetic responses. And in general, our culture, each of these responses has emotional signposts that go with them. So our culture is really more comfortable with men displaying Mm -hmm. sympathetic responses like anger and rage and women 
the flight and the freeze responses, which is more like worry and anxiety and panic or confusion and disorientation. So I was also just running those grooves a lot of the time. So that's really where that recognition of sort of the physiology together with the biomechanics, together with the trauma is how we kind of get these stacks. And the good thing is once you know that you can start doing the opposite, which which is kind of what my book is about is like this emphasis on parasympathetic, parasympathetic, parasympathetic is coming from a male dominated lens in many, many different ways. And so women actually heal differently than men do. In a way, your book has a lot of that energetic quality of bringing the feminine into a more um, sympathetic place, I think. Am I correct on that? Yeah, healthy, sympathetic charge. Yeah, and one of the things that I really loved um, in your book, and I also watched you on a webinar talk about this a while ago, was the predator-prey dynamic. And I think this is a great segue into that because I think what you're saying, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that the feminine energy tends to be more of the um, prey, and that's the parasympathetic. And the male energy, which I'm saying, because of course we all have both tends to be more of the predator mentality and the sympathetic. And with that information, and you talk a lot about the Jaguar as one of your main icons of your work. And obviously on the cover of your new book, um, can we talk a little bit about predator prey dynamic and what that means to you as far as the path to healing, especially for women? Yes. So male and female. So because of conditioning and also because of connective tissue density, it's been more acceptable for men to be in a sympathetic state and more acceptable. And I'm talking about the white overculture. This doesn't overlay onto every culture all the time. Uh, And for women to be in the prey position. And we've moralized that. So we've decided that that means that predators are bad and prey is good. And it makes sense because no one really wants to be a predator the way that we use the word. Like you think of predator and you think even like super predator, like Harvey Weinstein or something. But that's actually not a true predator. Because predators in the wild, they just take what they need. They don't go on random killing sprees. So like wolves only attack hen houses if they've been close to domestication. They don't, wild wolves don't just go killing a bunch of things they're not going to eat. And in fact, wolves have a relationship to a pack of the prey animal or herd animal that they are going to cull is that they're usually culling that so that the, the strength of the herd is stronger. Now, we really hate that as humans because it just sounds awful, right? It just sounds like, oh, it's just super Darwinian and, oh, the weakest are going to get taken. And so we're not trying to adopt that um, point of view, but we are trying to recognize that there is a natural order And within our own nervous systems, we need to actually be able to occupy the predator and the prey. So it doesn't work to only be on one side of that spectrum. And that really filters down to many, many different things. And I do want to say it's not about becoming an alpha female because then people think like, oh, so you're just going to be like, that is our image of what a predator is, but that an actual jaguar hunts and it's the female jaguars that hunt once in a while and then they go back and chill out on the tree or play with their cubs or hang out in the cave like it's not like they're on the prowl all the time that's not functional or efficient so when i talk about activating your inner jaguar or claiming the predator or the huntress it's activating our self-protective responses and having an inbuilt sense of confidence that when we need them, we could use them. Mm-hmm. And that means you can actually relax or surrender in that case. You're not just a rag doll default in parasympathetic because you don't know what you want or how to say it or how to express yourself. You actually can genuinely surrender because you know that you could be 
the predator if you needed to be. Not in your brain, because most women know, yeah, I'm powerful. I can have the sex I want. I can make, yeah, our brains know that. Our brains are feminists, but our bodies are not synced up with that mental reality. Yeah. So can you tell me an example of the female sympathetic predator response that would illustrate kind of um, what you're saying about and take away the maybe the, the cultural stigma that a lot of us have around that? Many women have been in, women and females, both of them, have been in situations where we could not make the movements that we wanted to make, or we couldn't say the words that we wanted to say. Whether that's a birth scenario or a relationship scenario or a scenario with our parents. Uh, it's not that every human hasn't had those situations, but in general, the women that I've worked with, there are often many unsaid words and many unmade movements, whether that was to push someone off of them, whether that was to tell someone to just back off, whether that was to say, you know, I need more time for this decision, or I'm not, I don't feel comfortable with this, and I'm not sure why. Could we just take a moment here? Completing a fight response is entering the matrix, and in that matrix where the system is available, being able to say or do the things that you couldn't do earlier. Mm. But as a means of repair, a lot of people who've taken my class can now go, for instance, to a pap smear and, or the dentist. And instead of feeling dread about it and then just kind of checking out the whole time and being like, just do whatever you need to do and get it over with. And I'm just going to just, you know, just deal they've been able to make changes about how they do it. So maybe they take a friend with them. Maybe they get in the room and tell their doctor, you know, I need, I need you to not look at your computer and look at me right now. Um, when you touch my genitals, would you mind just taking a moment to just make contact with my whole vulva before there's any other kind of contact? And they've been able to have successful moment-to-moment -moment interactions with a practitioner or with their partner that they couldn't have before. So there's dramatic examples, like uh, you're walking down the street and someone comes up to scare you, but you perceive that. And so you turn around and hold your ground right then, or maybe even a sound comes out uh, before you even think about it because you just have that much intact proprioceptive awareness. That might be a more dramatic situation, but really, you know, if you're around a predator, so, a tiger, a lion, uh, a cat, and you are feeling your own system as you're noticing theirs, or a wolf, you would feel, you might feel threatened because they're so powerful. But if you were at a safe distance from them, you would actually feel a sense of power, but calm, because again, they're not on the Unless they, unless you were watching them stalk something, then you might start to feel nervous because when they're stalking, you're resonating with the prey. But what I realized when I watched in somatic experiencing school, we watch videos of predator and prey. Some of the people relate to the predator. It's not everyone who's just rooting for the rabbit to get away. Some people are relating to the wolf. And there's really nothing moral about that. That doesn't mean they're bad people or we need to be afraid of them. It means they have those intact responses. So I'm not sure how clear that is, but no, it's, it's uh, I think from a felt sense perspective, and, and it's not to say also, like I, a lot of people are like, well, you, you're blaming the victim. I'm actually not blaming anyone. I'm just saying that we live inside of a dynamic that's not clear. And because of these well-worn patterns, both individually, because of our dispositions, um, our connective tissue, we end up in these roles involuntarily. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there should be men teaching activate your inner rabbit. Like that's also a part of this, right? But that's not the population <laughs> that I work with. And I'm leaving that work to someone else. But in the meantime, we didn't really need that because when women activate these responses, 
usually their partners are waiting for them to tell them what they want or how they want it or like what would work better. They're just confused because they're trying to be respectful. They don't, the men don't want to be predators either. The men are getting a lot of mixed messages of like, I want you to be emotionally sensitive, but I also want you to like totally ravish me in the bedroom. And they're trying to figure that out. And as women, we're like having to be full on as like moms and business people. And then on the other side of that, like, oh, but I actually kind of want this other energy when I'm in the bedroom. So we're all in this soup together trying to work it out. But in the meantime, it really is important for us, especially the parasympathetic dominance to learn how to hold more charge in our nervous system overall. Because what happens is we start to get a lot of things mixed up. Arousal itself just starts to feel dangerous. Activation starts to feel dangerous. And we go towards all of the down-regulating activities because they're more comfortable. So we go like, okay, then I'm going to go you know, do a yoga practice, which slows down your valve system for the most part. Um, you know, take a hot bath, slows down your valve system. Do long exhalations or pranayama, slows down your valve system. And do all of these things that are actually taking us deeper into our default state rather than taking us into balance. Right. And it's probably also what we are craving when we're in that pattern because it's the most comfortable. So going more into parasympathetic for me feels like, you know, this uh, way that I can go into my comfort zone, which, you know, the predator mentality or the par- or the sympathetic side is a little bit more daunting. Um, so I can, you know, how we tend to like stay in our pattern, right? So it's, it's exactly what you're saying. What keeps coming to mind that I wasn't planning on talking to you about, but that kind of is this archetypal representation, I think, of what you're talking about is Kali. The goddess, the Hindu goddess Kali is one of those things that I've really embodied in myself at times, especially as a single mom, you know, because she's like still that pure female energy, but she's really brought in her power and her um, fight to make positive change in the world. That's, you know, what I think of as her. She's like revolutionist. She's making change for good, but she's doing it through this intense female, like raw energy that is just so raw and primal. Um, well, and, and she has rage that. and the rage doesn't make her less of a, f- because she's a feminine, got a representation of the feminine. It doesn't make her less feminine. And I think that is right. really changed even in the last five years. There's books coming out like Molly Carol May's Female Rage and My Passage into Motherhood and a, a desire to say like, oh, there's a lot of rage here. And the place the rage comes from is when you are in forced into a parasympathetic freeze or helplessness, then the degree to which you're going to pendulate into sympathetic, you're going to, you're not going to go to irritation and frustration. It's just going to be rage. And so we're dealing with centuries long rage. That's where, you know, black lives matter movement is coming from. It's like, we're talking about like centuries and centuries of oppression. And then people are like, well, why is there so much anger? Well, it's not just about this one thing. It's about this associative stack of decades and centuries of oppression, annihilation, evisceration. So uh, there's a real place for that. But as for most women, even, you know, I interviewed Joan Borshenko recently, she's in her 70s. Mm. She was talking about how um, even when she talks about it, she says that someone told her that she was aggressive in the 80s. And it was like, you could tell that even now that feels like an insult to her. And really, they were calling her aggressive because she was the only woman at Harvard Medical School. And like she's, I mean, she's like a really soft person and I'm pretty sure she was soft then. Cause you can kind of just tell that that's her, who she is. But yeah. it's like, when I heard it on this side, it's like, wow, even now aggressive or ambitious could be seen as negative because those are coded as negative for women. Right. And I've had neuroscientists argue with me that I'm doing a disservice by teaching women how to be apparently fierce. Like I teach women how to make facial expressions that are in coordination with how they're really feeling. And they're like, well, their likability is going to go down. And I'm like, exactly. Because that we're trying to like not care about likability for once and actually just be how we actually feel. But the other thing about Kali is like Kali is the master of uh, 
limits and boundaries, right? The master of like, this, this is, this is okay here. And this is not okay. And that's what the sympathetic nervous system offers us. The parasympathetic, like I said, is that like lack of boundary. I don't know. It's a great asset because it really is a superpower to be able to have this hyper perception. It's just that in our culture, it's not really protected. And so we have to protect ourselves and we can maintain that level of sensitivity without feeling like it's draining our energy or creating exhaustion, right? So how do we, how do we maintain that level of, of sensitivity and perception, but also not have that be at our own expense? Because again, if it's at our own expense, we don't have anything to use for good. I, I have so many clients that 15 years they've been working on, you know, in war zones, basically, literal war zones and figurative war zones. And then they just completely collapse because the reason they wanted to do that work is because they have this gigantic heart and they've got all of this parasympathetic dominance. But at some point they don't have, they don't have like the, that like real goat energy to pull from. That's like the solid earth matter mass that we need because we are in these bodies so it's I think this is my uh my thing no one's told me this so I could be wrong but I think that parasympathetic people we have a predisposition towards cosmic awareness towards the universal reality and parasympathetic dominant have a real foothold in the material world and we're all pendulating between universal reality and material personal reality and we need both of those so it's not throw it out it's just like let's let's like harness that and get that into potency totally yeah i love it um one of the parts of your book that i really resonate with and i know we've had this little bits of this conversation before especially i think on our previous podcast but you wrote a lot about pleasure and I was so excited to find that because so much of my work is around pleasure and the healing possibility that comes when we allow more pleasure, whether it's in my case, sometimes with directly eating, because that can be a challenge for so many of my clients, but also in just general, how we can use this, how we can practice receiving pleasure, how we can like build our pleasure muscle as women. I think it, it takes practice. And I just would love to hear you speak to pleasure and trauma and pleasure in the way that you wrote about it in your book and how we can sort of move into that more confidently knowing it is something that can be so healing. It's interesting. That's the chapter that's getting the most love, chapter four. Uh, and I didn't understand that it was radical, but now I'm understanding more because the word trauma has a negative connotation to it, I think. And so there's this idea that it's like going to be really hard and like, we're going to just like get in that shadow stuff. And even if people are like, oh my God, I love shadow work, which always cracks me up because anyone who does shadow work, no, it's going to be like, I love that. I mean, I know even if you're like a triple Scorpio, you're still going to be like, oh, okay, whoa. You know, like I love shadow work is just awesome. But anyway, we are in a culture that's addicted to intensity and that manifests in all different kinds of ways. And we're choosing into that in some ways and we're not choosing into it because the algorithms are, are, are what they are. But there is no way to heal trauma without a relationship to pleasure. It's impossible. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. I love that. It's impossible. And it's yeah. not woo-woo and it's not like this isn't a spiritual idea. This is a physiological <laughs> reality. Yeah. And I, I can't overemphasize that because the word pleasure, since we have this like crazy Protestant work ethic that is the foundations of this country and also completely overlays into how we've interpreted spiritual practice and how we deal with women overall, uh, it just seems like pleasure is the cherry on top that you get to after you work hard. It's the weekend after the work week. It's the, it's the, the reward you give yourself. The vacation. Yeah. And it's not like there aren't ebbs and flows. And I am fully trying to buy into this work week, work 
weekend thing myself, <laughs> but it's, it's pleasure is not what we think it is. I'm not telling people go get a vibrator and sit around and use it all the time. Although that could be great. And that might be the right thing. It's really the small moments and this addiction to intensity makes us addicted to intense healing modalities. So then we think, mm-hmm. oh, I feel a little bloated. I'm in a fast. I, um, you know, it's never like, oh, maybe I'll just start with eating balanced. It's like, I'm going to do something extreme first. Uh, and what we know about healing trauma is that, yes, sometimes we need catharsis and sometimes we need big events, but most of the time we need titration. We need a little bit at a time that's digestible and you can metabolize it. And, uh, and that's really missing. So, but the pleasure thing is like, when we start to notice what's around us and give it time and protract it. So as simple as just the pleasure of having a conversation with someone that you've known for 20 years, you know, the, the pleasure of noticing, wow, when I look up from my computer, I'm looking at the ocean. Like how much of the time am I just sitting here at my desk for whatever to my kitchen table and my desk at this point, um, my <laughs> proverbial desk, uh, like, do I, am I actually noticing that I'm looking at the ocean? Or am I just seeing it without absorbing it? Because that's incredible. And we tend to think because there's so much alarm and the world problems are so big that there's we're bypassing if we have pleasure. And we think, oh, well, if everything is so bad, do I deserve to feel good? Oh, I'm privileged. I shouldn't feel good. Oh, mm-hmm. and it's like there's a difference between spiritual bypassing. There's a difference between being a Pollyanna and not being able to be with difficulty and feeling genuine pleasure and letting, you know, this whole thing, your podcast satiate. That's really the name of the game. Can we be satiated in our system? Is the need that we think we have when it's fulfilled, do we have a moment for that? Absolutely. And I love that it doesn't have to be this gargantuan experience that would mimic something like for some people like Disneyland. It's a moment by moment shift. And I, one of the things I was reading in your book that really struck me because I can relate so much to this is mornings with kids when, especially single parenting, um, you know, there was a time when both my kids were home teenagers and there was just a lot of trauma going on for them in many different ways. And, you know, mornings, I remember just feeling like so victorious when they would like actually get to school. Like we made it through one more morning, like it was morning by morning, right? And you were talking about getting your daughter out of the door to school as well. And how I think you were talking about music and how just by putting on music in your kitchen while you were making breakfast and it just shifted the energy and that brought you into a more pleasurable state when sometimes it can feel like frantic in the mornings with kids getting them to school. So I loved that. And it, and I think it just really speaks to what you're saying. It's like, yes, can we look up from our desk and see the view? Can we appreciate the taste of our mate as we take a sip? You know, can we, I, I, I've been having my dog in here. She's actually with my son right now, but you know, I'll look over at her and she'll just be like sleeping on the couch in my office. And I'm just like, oh, so beautiful, so sweet. And that's enough insert in the midst of our busy days. Can we just take a moment to just appreciate what's around us or what we are grateful for, or, you know, a pleasurable experience, the taste of our food or, you know, the smell of the incense burning or whatever it is that will kind of shock us back into the present moment. So thank you for framing that. I I really love. Yeah. I think one thing that I would like to say, I'm sure we're coming to a close, but when I was dealing with a lot of trauma myself, meaning that I really hadn't kind of turned the key into a sense of even the ability to be more present moment to moment. So the reason I was doing really strong practices was because there was a level of dysregulation inside that only strong practice could get to. 
And I have a lot of compassion for that because I was really trying everything. I was doing my best. I was going to therapy. I was living close to nature and going for walks and connecting with friends. And I was doing all those things. But looking back on that time, I realized that most of the time my head was underwater and the practices were just bringing my head above water. But then I would need another practice because I would slide back down under the water until the next thing that I was doing. And that's why I wrote a book about somatic experiencing, because that's the modality that put the puzzle pieces together for me and gave me the ability to live with my head above water all the time and only go underwater some of the time. So I still don't write gratitude lists. Um, I'm not really, I don't do affirmations. I don't journal. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with those things. And I know there's lots of science that proves they work, but sometimes they're a substitute for embodiment. Sometimes they're a substitute from the, or there, maybe they're a stair step on the way to that natural oscillatory rhythm where they don't feel as necessary. I would expect that most people are doing many more coping practices in this last year, because I know for me, I felt like, oh, I thought I was in this place, but this situation is making it more necessary to have more like discrete tools or touch points. But I do want people to know that when we are able to complete some of these incomplete cycles, which is what trauma is, that there is a time that you get to where you feel okay most of the time. And it doesn't mean that people don't die and you don't have breakups and, and life isn't super challenging, but you know, you're, you don't every time think, am I going to survive this? Or you're not disoriented or confused a lot of the time, which is really how I felt. I didn't know I was until I felt otherwise, but I was confused and disoriented a lot of the time. And I thought it was spiritual. I thought, you know, I was spaced out. I was, I was vegetarian for 20 years and I had no business being. So I was like really spaced out. Uh, but I thought that was like a certain state and that was corroborated by the people around me because people really thought I was so calm and mellow. And it was like, but that's not what my inner world feels like. And that was very confusing for me because people were telling me this thing all the time that I didn't feel at all. And I think that's really common with people who have more of a freeze response as a disposition. And then this preference for like, it's really your inner world. That's real. The outer world's not real. So then like, we're just going to be like talk really slow and make an intense eye contact. And that's what's real. That intensity is real. So I, I don't want to make people think that it's being able to savor and appreciate. For me, that was hard one. That wasn't like, it wasn't easy. It hasn't been easy, but it is possible. Yeah. And I also want to hope, sorry. No, that's okay. I I was just going to add on that. I think what you were saying about all these different practices that can, they can be cerebral and they can be embodied. And, you know, just like it jumps to, I'm jumping to like writing a gratitude list. Like we could right now just quickly jot down a gratitude list, you and I, and be like, what are you grateful for? What am I grateful for? But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're like deepening into the sensations of our body to do that. We can do that from our head or we can do that from our heart, I guess, or deeper intuition sensation. And that's, I think the distinction of, you know, why some of these things can feel so um, external almost versus actually grounding and embodied. Yeah. I would, like, I'm really into really lately. I'm just really into, it's not always what we're doing, but how we're doing it. Definitely. Everything, yeah. It just makes such and a you difference. You can think your feelings and you can think your sensations, right? Um, that's really different. Or, or you can know, I always tell people like you can know where a cervix is or you can know where your cervix is. Those are right. two totally different things. And there's no reason to be hard on ourselves because we're thinking our feelings or we don't know where our own cervix is because we don't live in a culture that has valued those things and our language reflects that. But what this new book is really asking 
is that we prioritize that and we become the leaders so that we have that language because when we do, we can offer it to other people. And it's not, a, we don't have to teach them and be like, hey, I want you to learn this and I want you to be this kind of a lover. It's like we transmit that through yeah. our nervous system that is robust and perceptible, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Well, I would love to kind of wrap up with you in a way that you can tell us a little bit more about your pre-ordering and your book date release and anything that you feel is important to share around this big, beautiful new chapter coming for you. I'm so excited for you. If you want the first chapter of the book, you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter. The first chapter has got the most stuff in it. And I was like, really, we're giving that one away? But then I thought, <laughs> well, of course we're giving that one away because I want everyone who wants it to have it. So that's where like the charts are. If you kind of were getting the, so the cascade and, but you need to review that because like we all do. And I've been studying it for 10 years and I still love looking at it and love, like I get something out of it every time that I learn more about it. That would be a good place to go. Um, if you order 20 books, you get a session with me. There's only 10 of those. I think there's like seven left or something. I'm not giving one-on-one -on -one sessions right now. So, and that's what everyone wants. So I thought, okay, well, that will be fun. Cause I love doing session work. It's just um, business and life haven't opened up for that right now. Uh, and then we're doing book clubs, which that's what everyone's most excited about. And me too, because I get to teach people how to have the raddest a raddest circle together with the book and we're making the most incredible guide to go with it. So, awesome. but you know, if you go to the website to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash call dash of dash the dash wild, then, or maybe, no, oh, you can just go to book dash club. I don't know. You know how all these links are. I didn't really want to change my, my name is so common and then so long, but everyone's like, it doesn't matter. I'm like an 18 letter URL. Okay. Well, we'll go with it. But anyway, um, it's yeah, a new and, website, right? New website, new website. The book comes out April 13th. Um, uh, we're trying to make the New York times bestseller list. Um, my category self-help is the hardest one to make it in. Cause you're competing with Rachel Hollis and Marie Kondo and all the lifestyle people who have like huge syndications and multiple books. But I, the reason I want to be on the bestseller list is because our culture really needs some serious help right now with how we are with each other and how we speak to one another and how we're able to love each other. And I think that this book has a lot of the tools that we need so that that could actually happen. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I am so excited for all of this and I uh, still I'm getting my paper copy. Um, but I've loved the preview that you sent and, um, it's, and I also love paper copies of books more than anything. I have a small addiction, so Me I'll too. be, <laughs> I have a big addiction. Yeah, actually, I probably have a big addiction too, especially lately with the pandemic. It's like how many book deliveries can They're one friends. get? They're friends. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait for my copy and I'm so excited for you and it's always good to see you and stay connected. Thank Good to you see so you, Kimberly. Much. Thank you so Good much for being here with me on the podcast. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Satiate. Sending you my wholehearted wish for your health and happiness 